Well, uh, speaking of holding things captive, uh, in the summer of 2005, the London Zoo, the London Zoo had an idea that they thought would make an interesting scientific point, or, or at least garner some publicity. Uh, they decided to open an exhibit dedicated to showcasing the animal known as the Homo sapiens. Hopefully all of you remember from high school biology that the Homo sapiens are humans, right? Uh, the London Zoo found eight willing individuals, four men, four women, who would allow themselves to be put into a zoo enclosure, uh, stripped down to their swimsuits, basically with banana leaves over them, and spend the day on exhibition like the other animals in the zoo. Uh, when people came by, they would find these captives laying out tanning on a rock ledge, playing board games, hula hooping, waving at spectators. The idea was to showcase how much humans have in common with other animals for two straight weeks. You would be in captivity for two weeks. Uh, but the real idea, I think, was just to get people into the zoo, right? Uh, did it work? I mean, like, would you pay to go to the zoo to watch people living like animals? Can't you do that already on a Saturday at Costco? Do you need to go to the London Zoo for that? No, uh, did it work? Yes, one 21-year-old from England said this, I have lived in this country for nine years and have never come to a zoo. This exhibit made us come. Which I, I read that, I wanted to say, wait a second, you, you never went to see elephants or giraffes or hippopotami, but the thing that finally got you in the door was an exhibit of humans? What is wrong with people? Anyway, the good news is that those captives, unlike the other animals, got to go home every night when the zoo closed. Sleep in a warm bed, go to the movies, eat out at a restaurant, which actually defeats one of the points that the zoo was hoping to make. See, you can put humans in captivity, but even those who volunteer for it, even those who got paid for it, are usually unwilling to stay there. Well, this morning, as we begin the third week in this series, Mystery at Skull Rock, I wanna talk with you about captivity a little bit. What if I told you this morning that you are captive to something that is holding you back? About 20 years ago, before we had kids, my wife Andrea and I had a chance to take a trip to Italy. Uh, we got to spend time in Rome and in Venice and on the Isle of Capri in one of our favorite cities, the city of Florence. And when you're in Florence, Italy, what you have to do, like this is required of all tourists, you have to go to this museum called the Gallery of the Academy and see Michelangelo's Statue of David. Now, if you have only seen this on TV or in pictures, you, you might imagine it's just a normal statue, just very well done, that it's probably life-size, about the height of you or me, but this statue is 17 feet high. It is two stories. It is the height of a giraffe, an adult giraffe. It is massive. And at least when I was there, um, they had ropes on the floor around it and, and, and to keep there from being a traffic jam around this statue, which is what everyone is there to see, uh, where everybody just crowds the statue, they had guards telling you to keep walking and you just followed the ropes around a spiral, seeing it from all angles, and, and then moved right out of the rotunda into the next, the next gallery over. Well, well, the reason so many come just to see this, this statue of David, arguably the world's most famous statue, why? because of its height, perhaps? Yes, because of the artist, Michelangelo, but also because it is thought by many to represent the pinnacle of male perfection. Uh, frankly, I don't see it. Uh, guys like David are a dime a dozen. You know, dad bods like mine are hard to come by. 
work in progress. Anyway, what many people don't realize is that on their way to see the statue of David, they're passing, they're passing some lesser known statues by Michelangelo that very likely have far greater meaning. See, as you walk through the academy to get to David, right before you enter the rotunda where David is, you pass through a hallway called the Hall of Prisoners. Now, take a look at this, would you? Imagine walking through a museum whose most famous piece is David, and you turn a corner, and you see a statue of David at the end of the hallway, and you don't really look at what's on your left and what's on your right. You just walk right by that, because if you stopped and looked, you would miss this glorious thing in front of you. But if you did stop and look, you would see four amazing, unfinished sculptures by Michelangelo called The Captives. There's a long story about Michelangelo and the Pope getting into a fight and that delaying the project that, that these statues were originally for. And then Michelangelo starting on them again, only to get pulled aside to do the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel one more time, delaying those four statues. For years, Michelangelo would come back to these statues, do more work on again, off again, until, until one day he stopped. Michelangelo decided to leave them unfinished. And there's a reason that they're called the captives. I'm gonna show you a close-up picture of one of them so you can see what this reason is all about. This one is called Atlas. You can still see the actual blocks of stone that the statue is being carved out of. You can, you can see the rough chisel cuts there, but then you can see this figure starting to emerge, right? In this one, it's, a, it's a pro, an arm that is protruding and a torso of a man there and pieces of his legs and his arms almost look as if they're trying to free his head from the block of marble. If you were walking down this hallway and you took the time to stop and look at all four, if you took long enough, you would sense the turmoil, the struggle that is embodied in these figures. They are called the captives, not because he was carving depictions of people in slavery or in jail. They're called the captives because it's as though they are trying to break free from the marble to become what they were intended to be. They are captive to this prison of stone that is keeping them from becoming the guy at the end of the hallway. The museum has placed them on the way to David, this perfect specimen of a human, as if to say, uh, museum goers, you are about to see the make-believe that you can't relate to. First, let us show you the real that you experience every day. Uh, one author wrote this about these. He said, when I looked at those partial figures, they stirred up in me a deep longing to be completed, an ache to be set free from that which distorts and disguises, imprisons and inhibits my humanness, my wholeness. But as with those statues, I cannot liberate myself. For that, I need the hand of another. I wonder if you this morning are able to recognize that you are a mere mortal, captive to something that holds you back, something that distorts and disguises you, something that imprisons you and inhibits you, that keeps you from being whole and like these statues. I wonder if you cannot free yourself, you need the hand of another. And what I want to tell you this morning as we get into one more mystery of Skull Rock is this thing that you are captive to is something that is holding you back 
from being who you were intended to be. Jesus talked about this. There was this moment that we read about in John 4 where Jesus said something very beautiful and then it all went wrong. Uh, He was talking to a group of people and in verse 32 he said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you, see this with me, free. You've heard that before. The truth will set you free from being a captive. But where it went wrong is when the people heard this, they answered, wait a second, we are Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anybody. How can you say that we shall be set free? We're not captives. And Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Jesus says, you can think of yourself as free as anybody has ever been. You can think that you are David at the end of the hallway, but in reality, if you are a human, you are captive. If you are a human, you sin. And today, I want to challenge you, if you would be humble enough and honest enough to admit that you have sin in your life that might hold you back, I have something really wonderful to tell you about the cross. See, 12 days from now, Christians around the world will celebrate something or recognize something we call Good Friday. Um, I've always found it interesting that we call that day Good Friday. Uh, Easter I get, right? Resurrection, coming back from the dead, Jesus rejoining his friends, hope, life, that is a good day. But the day that we remember Jesus being sent to the cross, an innocent man killed, how is that good Now, there are images that go along with that day, and I don't find a lot of good in those images. A crown of thorns, not good. A whip, not good. Spit flying at Jesus' face, not good. And maybe maybe the most brutal image of all, the hammer. Like me, you probably look at this, and, and you know what it was used for, and it is hard to think there was any good in this act. But would you believe this instrument right here, this tool, holds the key to what made that Friday so good. Um, this is not a hammer like what we think of when we see hammers today. We think of steel. Uh, we see the steel forged a cool label on the hammer. In fact, uh, we think of air-compressed nail guns that do the work for us. But back in Jesus' time, this is a lot closer to what they would have used. And believe it or not, the good in Good Friday lies in this. I'm going to explain to you today why I say that, but I'm going to go kind of a roundabout way to get there. I'll just ask, hang with me. I think in the end this is all going to make sense, all right? One of the things that you notice about this hammer right away is that it looks like a gavel. Um, I have got a gavel right here. It is not much different than the hammer that you're looking at behind us. Uh, this one's just a little bit fancier and it's all wood. But gavels themselves are a very weird concept. Um, they're essentially nothing more than a wooden hammer. And, and, and noticing that, I started wondering whose idea was it to use a wooden hammer in the courtroom? Uh, Just to make sure we're all on the same page, I'm assuming, like me, the first thing you think of when you see a gavel is a courtroom. Uh, You've seen TV shows, you've seen movies in a courtroom. The judge has a gavel, and uh, when somebody has been judged uh, and a jury finds them guilty, the judge slams this down, right? That's what a lot of us think of when we think of gavel. The, the, The wooden hammer, a gavel, represents judgment. Somebody being found guilty. Again, not good. Some of us think of a courtroom that is out of control, don't we? We, We've seen that on TV. Uh, People are talking too much. Uh, If the show you're watching is especially intense, a fist fight has broken out in the courtroom, things are out of control, and the judge starts hammering down the gavel saying what? (laughs) Order in the court, exactly. Again, gavel, we think of a judge. We think of judgment. We, We think of somebody who's showing they're in charge. 
uh, that they're in control? Well, I did some research into this gavel thing to see where it came from, and, and I found out that uh, gavels in courtrooms isn't it, it really that old of a tradition. It's only been around a couple hundred years, but here's the weirdest part. Nobody really knows where it came from. Um, no one knows when judges started doing this. A few years ago, I, I had a friend who was a lawyer, and uh, so I figured that he would know, and I, I asked him, hey, where did the gavel thing come from? And he said, I don't know offhand, but I can find out. Uh, and so he asked around at his office some of the older partners who've been practicing law longer. Uh, none of them knew either. So he came back to me. He said, uh, no luck. You are on your own. And then he charged me $500 for his time. So... <laughs> Uh, so I set off to do the research myself, and, and, and there was something I, I found that I, totally fascinated me. Um, the word gavel, the very first time we ever see it appear in the English language, is in the Middle Ages, between the 11th and the 15th centuries. You know, like medieval history, knights and castles and Robin Hood. And this word had nothing to do with a wooden hammer at first. See, get this. Gavel was the word you used to describe the debt that you owed someone else. Gavel meant debt. In fact, in those times, gavel was used most to talk about the debt you might owe your landlord if you were late on your rent. Um, here's how it would work. In the Middle Ages, if you were late on your rent, you would get what was called a gavelette. Would you say that word with me? Gavelette, it's written notice that you were late and you now owed a debt and you needed to pay your debt soon. Um, all right, just quick time out. I, I, I know none of you have ever gotten a delinquent payment notice in the mail, but apparently this happens from time to time. And even today, you get what is essentially a gavelette, a company sending you a letter, written notice, saying, you owe us, you are indebted to us. And again, I know none of us have ever had this happen, but what I'm told is, is if you get this letter in the mail, it can be a little bit jarring. And it can make you feel kind of guilty, like you've done something wrong as they threaten to turn off your power or your, your cable. And they list the fees that they're adding on top of your debt for being late. And as you open the letter, the blood rushes to your face, sometimes in embarrassment, sometimes in anger. Again, just telling you, because I know most of you have never had this happen before. Well, back then, there were no automatic computer systems that sent you a delinquent notice when you were late. Your gavelette, your gavelette didn't come in a nice envelope where no one knew what was written on the inside when they delivered it. You could, you could keep your debt a secret. If you received a gavelette, someone hand wrote this notice, actually upset with you. Some offended party thought about what you owed and they were angry at you and they were wanting to collect and that someone would come to your door and hand deliver this notice. Now just imagine the feelings that go along with opening to the door, opening the door to the person wanting to give that to you. There are much stronger feelings than just checking the mail. You ready for this? In, in many instances, your gavelette would be made public. It'd be read aloud in a public forum posted for everyone to see. You are someone who didn't pay. You're someone who is late. You owe a debt. Well, 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 there is a word they use to describe you, and you didn't want to be labeled with this word. Uh, speaking of things that are not good, uh, being called this was not good. If you owed a gavel to someone else, you know what they called you, the person who owned the debt? A gavel man. One who owes a gavel. You were labeled the gavel man, the kind of person who did not pay what they owe, and that would follow you around until you paid it off. 
Or as was often the case, if for some reason you could not pay your debt back, you got so far behind it just became insurmountable, you would be sent to debtor's prison, captivity. Now here it is, it all comes full circle. Humans caged in, debtor's prison. Many of you have heard of that. They would actually lock you up in prison for not being able to pay your debts. Now here's a question, how did you get out? How did you pay your way out of prison when you were locked in and you couldn't work, you couldn't make money? You didn't. You hoped that somebody else could pay it for you. And so in medieval Europe, fathers would go to prison over their gavel and their wives, their little kids would go to work to try to make enough money to get dad out. The problem was that the money a wife or a child would make would need to go to pay for food and this month's rent. Not the back rent that the gavel man owed. And so the family would fall into poverty. It was incredibly unlikely that they could ever pay enough to get their husbands or their dads out. Debtor's prison was not a good place. Many people starved. Um, many people were abused. They're victims of violence at the hands of other people in prison. Lots of disease. If you were one of the lucky ones, you might get released to go become a slave to someone so you might be able to try to pay off your debt that way. It was not good to owe a gavel. So what does this have to do with a hammer and the mystery of the cross and the thing that we're here talking about today? And more importantly, what does any of this have to do with you? Well, the Bible says that you and I are gavelmen. And that because of it, we have been made captive. Now, it doesn't use the word gavel anywhere, but it talks about this concept of debt. And it talks about debt, it, it, it talks about a debt so great that it made us captive. As I told you earlier, captive to sin. But actually, actually, not really just captive to sin. You and I, it says, are captive to death. Um, Romans 6.23 literally says this, for the wages of sin is death. What that means is that sin, our choices, the way we, we sometimes treat other people, treat ourselves, the way that we certainly treat God, those things have put us in this marble block called death. Now, just real quick, because some of you have seen this verse before. Sometimes somebody will read this verse, and they will explain that your wage for sinning is death, as if it's a paycheck that is coming your way. You sinned, now you're going to die, checks in the mail. But actually, the Greek word for wages there does not have to mean paycheck. That word can mean expense, can mean an exchange, and it can mean charge, like when you charge something. And what it's really saying is that my sin put me in debt to death. Um, let me translate it this way. For the sins that I have done have made me captive to death. And your sin has done that with you. Every one of us is going to die someday. But Paul finishes that verse. He says, good news, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, real quick, because I'm not sure that I've convinced you yet. Um, do most of you know the Lord's Prayer? Uh, th this sin puts us in captivity to death thing is exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said this line, forgive us our debts. He's referring to the debt that our sin has gotten us into. Now, now one more thing you got to know, and I know I've introduced a bunch of historic stuff today from Michelangelo to gavels and gavelettes, but one more thing, all right? 
In the Bible, the way that somebody would pay off this debt was with something called a ransom. When we hear the word ransom, we think of a kidnapping. Uh, ransom is what a terrorist or a kidnapper asks for when they're holding you hostage. Uh, in our world, uh, ransom is a suitcase full of carefully counted money. You're supposed to drop in a secret location to get back what's been stolen from you. Uh, ransom is a 1996 Mel Gibson movie, but, but, but that was not ransom in the Bible. Ransom was the way that you pay a debt you legitimately owe. It, it is what a gavelman is supposed to pay to get rid of his gavel. And again, the Bible says that our choices to not follow God have left us with a spiritual debt. And, and just so you can see how big of a debt this is, check this out. This is the writer of Psalm 49, and he says this. Again, this is not good. Verse 7 says, No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a sufficient ransom. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough. The writer of this psalm notices the spiritual debt that each person in the world owes, and he says, people, this is a problem. Our debt is so great that nobody can redeem the life of another or give a big enough ransom. In other words, we are in debtor's prison, and there is no one person in the world, not your spouse, not your kids, not your parents, not your, your, your friend, not your, your pastor. No one can pay off your gavel and get you out because the ransom for this spiritual debt is costly. No payment is ever enough. And I don't know if you've ever felt that, ever had a debt that unpayable. It is a pretty dark place to be. You know, I, I, I think a lot of times in our effort to make God more accessible to each other, we all have a tendency to focus on God's love and we ignore the gravity of our debt. Yes, I've done a lot that's wrong. I haven't quite followed like I probably should, but compared to the next guy or the stuff that I see on the news, compared to everybody else, I'm a saint. My kind of debt is the kind of debt that is very easily forgivable. Okay, look at this passage again. It says that's not true. It is not easily forgivable. And while God is loving, you, you can't even begin to know God's love until you know your debt. And it says right here, no payment is ever enough. The ransom for your life is too costly to pay it on your own. And so, on a Friday, Jesus looked and he saw this and he said, that is bad. That is really bad. Gavels, people spiritually in debt, that's bad. In debtor's prison, enslaving yourself to a life of trying to earn your way out but continuing to fail at it, it is bad. It's tragic. And Jesus said, it is not what I want. It is not the way to do relationship with me. It is bad, bad, bad. But Jesus said, I am in the business of turning bad to good. And so, on that Friday, a wooden hammer that has come to mean judgment and control bad things was used as an instrument to usher in good ransom for your debt. A debt that no one ever thought could be paid. On that Friday, Jesus gave himself to die on a cross so that you could be free, so that he could take the gavel that you owe with him to the grave. And on that day at noon, after the long walk carrying a cross up a hill was done, 
And after the nails had been driven and, and the clothes torn off and a crown of thorns put on his head, after they put a sponge full of vinegar in his face and tried to get him to drink from it like it was water, after they hung a sign above his head that mockingly said, King of the Jews, after the people shouted, if you're really the son of God, save yourself, after everything else was done, right before it would be finished, all the debt of your past and your present and your future, all the debt of the world accumulated into this one place and one man breathed his last breath and said, I will pay it. And he set you free. And God says, what you have to do to let Jesus be your ransom is own up to your debt and ask him to pay it and then give him leadership of your life. There are some of us here who've never done that because we've always thought we could pay it back on our own. And even though we feel like we're in captivity and like spiritually something is missing and like something is holding us back from breaking out of the marble to be who we were intended to be, even though we know that, we still think we will pay the debt ourselves and we sit in prison our entire lives. And I'll, I'll tell you why this is the issue. As long as this debt is hanging over your head, it is impossible to be free. And until you say, I cannot pay this on my own, I can't liberate myself, I need the hand of another, this debt isn't gonna go away. Why not do that now? Break free from the marble. God, I've got debt. Would you pay it for me? In a second, I'm, I'm gonna give you a chance to do that. But there are others of us here who've done that already, and yet we have forgotten how great the debt was that Jesus paid for us. And, and today, we need to go back and remember how badly we needed that ransom. Yes, we are living in God's grace, but let me also tell you, God's grace is so much greater when you can recognize what you are being, what you've been forgiven for. Jesus' death on the cross is so much more meaningful when you can think of specific reasons in your life you needed it to happen, to be open and honest and, and even detailed with him about our sin and then to know that Christ died as a ransom for those specific sins. It is like nothing else you'll ever experience. There's a release and a feeling like you don't owe anymore. You are saying, God, look at how much I owe you. And as you're saying it, God is saying back, it has been paid. In fact, check out this verse. That, that Psalm I showed you said that your debt is so great that nobody can give their life to help you repay it. Well, that psalmist didn't know Jesus. And hundreds of years later, Jesus came on the scene and he said this, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Good Friday was good because something happened that people thought was not possible. A spiritual debt that could not be paid was paid for many by one. There's one other thing I learned about a gavel in my research, and this you may already know. Um, gavels are used today at auctions. 
Uh, I have never been to a real auction. I didn't know this. I've seen uh, Storage Wars on TV. That's about as close to an auction as I've ever come. But apparently, at a real auction, after all the bidding has taken place, this happens. Going once, going twice, sold. And the gavel is the way that an auctioneer says the transaction is over. Slams down his hammer, his gavel, and he says, the price has been set. Now go pay what you owe. The auctioneer says, case closed. Transaction over. No more haggling. This is it. Decision has been made. It is finished. It is finished. And personally, that is why I think this is one image from that Friday that is so good. The gavel representing a debt that has been paid. The hammer representing a transaction that is closed. It is done. You owe nothing else. If you'll let what Jesus is doing here on the cross count for you, you are free. So how about you? Are you still holding on to your debt and trying to pay it yourself? Or have you accepted his grace and his forgiveness? Have you let him be your ransom? I'm gonna pray right now. And if that's something you've never done and you wanna do that today, I'll just ask you to make my words your words. You don't have to say them out loud, but in your head, if you're feeling moved right now to ask him to be your ransom, just make my words your own as I pray, all right? Let's all bow our heads together. And I'll just pray, God, I acknowledge I have not followed you quite like I should. There is a spiritual debt I owe that I cannot pay. But God, I know that Jesus has offered to be my ransom. And so God, I ask for him to be mine for him to come into my life, pay for me, and to be my leader. God, thank you for a love so great that it would set me free. Amen. If you prayed that prayer with me, we would love to help you know what it looks like to, to live free. You are set free now. And in a moment, when we go to the communion tables, we have these little cards on them that have QR codes. You just grab one, scan it when you get home, and, 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 and we'll send you an email about what it is and what it looks like to live into this grace, this ransom that has been paid for you. Now, real simply, here's what we're going to do today. There are communion elements around the room, and I, I know the last few weeks we've been receiving communion together, and you just come up and you've been taking it yourself, but sometimes there is something special about having someone look you in the eye and say to you, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. And today we've got our pastors and some of our elders at, at tables around the room. And rather than you just grabbing the elements off the table, um, we wanna say those words to you as you take the elements from the trays in our hands. But we also wanna tell you something else, that your debt has been paid in full. If in medieval times someone showed up at your door to say you owe, 
How about now, in these times, we say, your debt has been paid in full? We thought that might be a really important thing for your ears to hear. You'll come to the table and, and you can eat the elements right there as you've been given them and then go back to your seat. And I want to invite you to come join us. Let us remember together the moment that Jesus paid it all, all of your debt. Come and remember Christ who gave his life as a ransom for many. Today we say paid in full, transaction complete. The Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left. Crimson sing, he watched the whitest sun. change the 
Stand up with us 
Let's sing one more song together.
the sun forbid to shine. Sing, but God, but God, who called me here below will be forever mine. Will be forever mine. Will be forever mine. Sing, you are forever mine. You are forever mine. God, we are so grateful that we get to do this, Lord. We get to stand in a place like this and sing together, God. Lord, be glorified in our life. Be glorified in everything we do this week, everything we set our hands to, every word we speak, Lord may be worthy of the one who has ransomed us. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, have a great weekend. Have a great week. And we'll see you back here next weekend. Amen.